Welcome to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. Welcome in to a big soccer morning post-Champions League matchups yesterday. Hopefully you watched some of those games, saw some of those highlights. Good stuff there. And our guest today, Leander Shalakins from from everywhere, really. From He's writing at Yahoo. He's writing at, uh, where else is he writing, Trevor? I can't keep a track of Leander these days. Leander Alphabet on Twitter is his handle. He'll join us to talk about the Champions League. Good stuff there in terms of Barcelona advancing. No shock. Maybe shocking the scoreline a bit. But certainly they dominated City for large, large stretches of that game. Speaking of domination, Juve. Woo! Juve dominating Dortmund at the Westfalen Stadion. Who expected that? The best performance for Dortmund on the day was the yellow wall and that TIFO. That was a brilliant TIFO. In fact, if we were naming TIFO champions of the world, or certainly TIFO champions of Europe, it's probably Borussia Dortmund, right? Their fans are probably the TIFO champions. Are there any challengers? I'm not sure. Throw, throw, me, throw me some potential challengers for TIFO champion. So after Leander, we'll have a large open segment for your phone calls and tweets. I'm hitting up, uh, hitting up Twitter right now. Tag it S- Ask SM, and we'll get into whatever you want to talk about. It, 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 you know, I'm, 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 this is dangerous territory, but I'm really even willing to say it doesn't have to be soccer-related. Maybe try to keep it soccer-related, but it doesn't have to be soccer-related. Should be a good show. Let's get into the headlines this morning. I, I've gone over those Champions League results again. Barcelona seeing off City one nothing. The goal by Rakitic set up by Lionel Messi, who was absolutely fantastic. He didn't score, but he did everything else. Nutmegs just flying all over the place. Nutmegs for everyone. You get a nutmeg, and you get a nutmeg. I know that joke's played out, but you everybody gets a nutmeg. Fantastic stuff from Messi. We'll talk to Leander about that for sure. And Juve, again, 3-0 over Dortmund with uh, Carlos Tevez getting things started. Big win for Juve. And as we sort of outlined yesterday when we talked to Janusz Mihalik, a big win for Italian soccer. Big win for Serie A, getting Juve into the quarterfinals. We await the draw. But we'll see. So we'll see what Juve can do in that round of eight for for the time being. A good performance from Juve to put away Dortmund, move on in the tournament. The CONCACAF Champions League also went off last night. Montreal staking themselves to a 2-0 aggregate lead over Alohalense. Almost so close. At the Olympic Stadium in Montreal. Good win for the impact. Cameron Porter was the star of the day from whatever everything I saw on Twitter. A rookie forward making a mark for Montreal. He obviously scored the goal that beat Pachuca in the last round. Is 2-0 enough for Montreal going down to Costa Rica? I'm not sure anybody's going to feel comfortable with Montreal sitting on a two-goal lead, but you didn't give up an away goal, and you managed to stake yourself to a more than than one-goal lead. That's something to, to grab onto. Now, I think it's going to be interesting to see if Frank Lopas tries to just shut things down in Costa Rica. Because I'm not sure that that's the way to go. They they do Montreal did advance to this point based on a defending numbers counterattacking type of scheme. But that's uh, but for the, for the time being, what we need to know from Montreal is whether they have the, they have the resolve to do this. And how amazing would it be 
if Montreal was the first MLS team to lift this trophy. Look, looks like Herediano has the inside track to beat Club America, so we could see uh, a Costa Rican team make it over there. Alouelense is not done. They could very well make it. But Montreal, if Montreal manages to go all the way here, what interesting would that be? All right, so we're going to limit the, the phone calls. I will get to most of your questions if I can. But David Cartlidge has just uh, has just let us know that he is available. So we are going to talk La Liga, Champions League, and El Clasico with David at 1040. So we'll throw that into the mix. I sorry, sorry to disappoint if you had some wacky question you wanted me, wanted me to get to. But uh, I got a conversation with David is always good. Avi Wambach, U.S. Women's National Team striker, uh, obviously from uh, the, the Western New York Flash as well, has chosen to forego the 2015 NWSL season to focus in directly on the Women's World Cup in Canada this summer. This is from Fox Soccer. Avi Wambach is taking the season off from playing in the National Women's Soccer League to focus solely on representing the United States in the World Cup this summer. She made the announcement in a release issued Wednesday by her NWSL team, the Western New York Flash. At this stage of my career, I know what I need to prepare mentally and physically for this summer. My sole focus is to help bring a World Cup back to the United States. This is all well and good, especially for a player who is probably not in the peak physical shape of her career. I don't, uh, I don't really begrudge her the right to try to protect herself and be physically ready for a grueling World Cup on turf, compacted schedule, come this summer. And yet, you have to wonder that you have to wonder about the disconnect between club soccer time and the women's national team, and whether or not women's national team head coaches and Jill Ellis in this particular case should, should be concerned by the fact that Abby Wambach not going to have any club minutes under her belt going into the summer, that it's only going to be whatever national team preparations are taking place. That was this would certainly never fly in the men's game, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. We leave that question open, but it is interesting to see Abby Wambach decide to forego the 2015 NWSL season and obviously a blow to the New York uh, Western New York Flash. Sepp Blatter has rejected the offer to take pay, take part in the BBC slash Sky Sports FIFA presidential debate because, duh, of course he refused to do this. It doesn't, it doesn't do him any good to go on television that would be beamed around the world to take on those other contenders for FIFA president and go off in a debate. The man has a propensity for sticking his foot in his mouth. He doesn't project well on television. He has the power base to maintain his position. Why the hell would he do this? Now, because he's not going to do this, the rest of the plan falls apart. BBC and Sky say they've been told that the 79-year-old Blatter would not take part in their planned Fans Congress. Blatter's rivals had quickly accepted the invitation from the broadcasters to debate live ahead of the May election. FIFA Vice President Prince Ali bin Al-Hussein of Jordan, Portugal Great Luis Figo, and Dutch Football Association Chief Michael Van Praag wanted to end, want to end Blatter's reign. Asked last year if he would debate any of his election rivals, Blatter said, We shall not imitate all what is done in politics. Yes, politics is a mess, and yet this would be a step forward for FIFA. Again, no surprise that Sepp Blatter has begged off. But like I said, because he is not taking part, it will not happen. There is no point for BBC and Sky to invest the money for three guys who are not going to win. 
I found this interesting. Uh, we'll talk to perhaps talk to David Cartledge about this. Paul Pogba, obviously a target for many of the biggest clubs in the world, an extremely expensive player because he's an extremely talented player for Juventus. Came off injured yesterday, by the way. Uh, so Juventus did that without Paul Pogba for most of that match. Uh, he has decided that he is not interested in going to Real Madrid because they discard players like face cloths, is the quote. Interesting news there. Obviously, Real Madrid, one of the few teams in the world that can afford Paul Pogba. If he's eliminating them from the running already, what does that mean for the bidding war that may or may not come? Will Juventus sell him? I don't know. Leander Sherlackins will be on the air with me just in just a minute. We'll talk Champions League with him. Soccer Morning brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Be right back. You're talking too loud. Every soccer fan in the world knows that the biggest match of the year is El Clasico between Barcelona and Real Madrid. It's your chance to witness Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, and more of the greatest players in the world. The best way to watch is with Dish World and their exclusive broadcast from BN Sports. Dish World is the number one live international TV service in the U.S. It's a safe and legal streaming service that delivers your favorite sports and more to your TV, tablet, phone, and computer. For just $10 a month, you can watch El Clasico, plus La Liga, Serie A, and Copa America, as well as the New York Cosmos, Chelsea TV, Arsenal TV, and others with One World Sports and more top networks offered by Dish World. There's no commitment, no annual contract, and no satellite dish needed. Don't miss El Clasico on Sunday, March 22nd. Sign up today at www.dishworld.com. Hey there, it's Jason Davis, and if you're like me and love playing fantasy soccer games, I want to let you know about a fantastic new game called Draft11.com. This is not your usual fantasy soccer game. Draft11.com is different for two major reasons. First, it's a daily fantasy soccer game, and second, it gives you an opportunity to win cash. So instead of playing an entire season and competing against, say, the 3 million people who play fantasy Premier League and winning nada, you can play Draft11.com over one match day against up to 10 people. And if your team wins, you win. Cash, not points. So go ahead and support our new sponsor that's helping bring Soccer Morning to you every single day. Head over to Draft11.com, sign up for a free account, and take a shot at trying to win some cold, hard cash. Thanks. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Time to talk about the world's preeminent club competition, the UEFA Champions League. Perhaps some other things as well with our friend Leander Sherlakin. Follow him on Twitter at Leander Alphabet. Uh, Leander, how are you, sir? I'm very well, Jason. How are you? I'm okay. Uh, we had some interesting Champions League results yesterday. Um, I'm not sure that the Barcelona uh, victory over City is a surprise in any stretch. Maybe the... the Maybe the scoreline is a touch of a surprise, considering how, how much Barcelona dominated that game. Yeah, in, in that sense, it really was. I mean, Lionel Messi was once again just absolutely transcendent. I mean, it, it seems that, you know, a few times a season, he goes into this little two- or three-week burst, and sometimes it's longer, where he goes from great to just being unimaginably good. Um, and he's in one of those stretches right now. And 
between all the chances he had himself, between all the chances he created, uh, between all the good looks Neymar had, uh, maybe they should have won five or six zero. But um, the the person that prevented them was Joe Hart, Manchester mm-hmm. City's goalkeeper. I mean, as they like to say, he stood on his head. He just made a series of unbelievable um, saves, just uh, again and again denying them a point-blank range, at one point taking a shot to the face to make a save, I believe, um, doing that again and again, which is interesting because Hart is, is sort of a streaky goalkeeper, and it seems he has these spells with Manchester City where he's, he's unreliable and others where he's just absolutely brilliant. Um, so th- that's what kept the score respectable, I think. But it was, aside from a 15-minute stretch from um, the 60th minute until about the 77th minute or so, so 17 minutes, I guess, when, uh, when City had the penalty, I believe, uh, Barca just absolutely dominated them. What, for you, Leander, what is the uh, what is the more attractive narrative? City's failures in this competition, and, and look, I mean, round of 16, maybe you don't call that a failure for most clubs, considering how much they've spent and their goal of being ascendant in Europe. This is this uh, constitutes a, a failure. Or Barcelona and, I don't know, reclaiming their predominance in, in Spain, certainly. Uh, obviously, Messi being on amazing form, and the, the fact that, hey, at this point, with Real Madrid's struggles, and, and say what you want about Bayern Munich, Barcelona is capable of beating them. Maybe Barca should be one of the favorites here. Well, I, I think both those narratives are worth exploring and are very interesting. I mean, on the one hand, you've got the continued failure of English clubs in, in Europe. Um, as I just tweeted out, Everton right now is the only English club that's still active in Europe. It's March 19th, yeah. and they're taking a one-goal lead to Kiev, um, Dynamo Kiev they're playing today, uh, which has a, an away goal. So it's, it's totally conceivable that after today, you know, going into the, uh, um, into the quarterfinals of the Champions League and the, uh, and the Europa League, there will be, I guess Europa League's already in the quarterfinals, but that there will be no English clubs left. Um, so, you know, that, that's, I, I think that's getting to a point now where it's happened enough years in a row where there were just, a lot fewer English clubs in those in those late rounds of the Champions League. I mean, they, they've they've not had the best track record in the Europa League, um, where it's it's becoming a trend, I think. And and I think that if if you're in charge of the of the Premier League, maybe you start to ask some questions of yourself and and of how your league is set up. Yeah. And of course, we we there there's a circular argument to to be made there that well, you know, the the Premier League doesn't do well in Europe because the league itself is so good. And that, you know, teams are exhausted when Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday comes around from the weekend game, so they never do very well, which I'm, I'm not sure I buy into that. Right. And then on the other hand, like you say, you've got Barcelona, which two months ago was supposed to be in total crisis and it was supposed to be the end of the dynasty, is, is really gearing up now to, uh, to you know, the, the kind of form that, that made this modern Barcelona team so famous. Mm-hmm. And they, they've got the Clásico coming up on Sunday. Um, they, they look really good for that. And so what, what really I wondered after the game was, you know, how much was this Manchester City's failings in Europe and how much of it was Barcelona just, just being that good right now? Yeah. It, it's kind of hard to handicap both of them since they played each other, yeah. if, if that makes sense. The overarching English narrative of, of failure in Europe, I, I find it interesting. I find the reaction to the discussion more fascinating than the discussion itself, Leander. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of kvetching to use, a, uh, to use a specific word on the part of the English when it comes to this, but I never, I'm never sure if it's an indication of a pan 
Anglo failure, especially considering the international makeup of most of the biggest teams that are in this competition, or if it's uh, or if it's just a matter of circumstance. I mean, these things sometimes come and go in, in waves that we don't really understand. No, that, that's that's very true. Um, it's just that really the only team in the, in the last few years that has really been consistently competitive in Europe has been Chelsea. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, they, they went out to Paris Saint-Germain after extra time, and maybe, you know, the, the, that's not a very big sample size to, to judge them on, if we're going to be scientific about it. Um, but there have been continued struggles, a, a continued pattern of English teams that just don't at measure up in Europe. I mean, you've got Arsenal now for the fifth straight year, um, knocked out in the round of 16. Manchester United didn't make it this year because of their shambolic season last year, but but they've sort of not really been all that convincing in the last few years. Um, you know, th- this is something that holds true for a number of England's better teams. And this is something that I wrote for my Yahoo column. Um, the amount of money that was invested in Manchester City, and, and money certainly doesn't fix everything in soccer, but it fixes a lot, um, bought them the kind of depth and the kind of firepower, and really they're, they're good in every single line, where they should just be doing better. But, but four years into this experiment that, that Manchester City really is, um, they've been knocked out in the group stage twice and the round of 16 twice. Now, granted, both times they went out in the group stage, they drew a group of death, and both times they went out in the round of 16, it was against Barcelona. So they've had some bad luck. But at the same time, there's so much money in that squad that yeah. they should be able to sort of protect themselves from bad fortune a little bit. It, it, it makes me wonder what sort of reactionary response we're going to get out of uh, City Football Group after this campaign is over. Because it certainly doesn't look like they have the juice to chase down Chelsea and win a, a, another title. Now they've fallen out of the Champions League, again, to Barcelona, but still, you have this goal, and it, doesn't, it shouldn't matter who you run into. You, if you don't reach your goal, you're, gonna, you're going to be facing change. What, do you, what would you expect? I mean, is, this, is Pellegrini going to leave? Are they going to try again with another manager? What kind of spending spree do they go on this summer? What, what's going to happen? Well, the, that's, that's what's curious about this team, because I, I think that Pellegrini was, was clearly an upgrade over Roberto Mancini in terms of uh, preparing the team for Europe, because Mancini just doesn't have, didn't have the tactical wherewithal, and, and that's, that, that was well known about him. That was true when he was at Inter Milan as well, to, to really compete in Europe. Um, and Pellegrini's done better on that score in that they've looked better in Europe. And they've been a little bit more, I hate to use that word, but pragmatic, a little less naive, and they've sort of gotten results where they needed to until they get to the knockout rounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, it's it's a reactionary, mercenary sport, right? I mean, chances are that if if not now, then maybe early next season, if things aren't going exactly according to plan, maybe he gets fired and they bring someone else in. But I don't really see the point of starting over with this city team because they've got a good core of players who are in their primes. They've won two Champions League, or sorry, they've won two Premier Leagues in the last three years. Um, I don't really know that a coaching change might make all that much difference. I, I think Pellegrini is actually a pretty good fit for that team. Um, he certainly got a, got a lot of good press before that City game of, of people sort of appreciating what he's done with that club. Mm-hmm. He's brought some stability and he's brought calm that, that never seemed to be there under Mancini. So I just don't know that that's the answer. Um, I also don't know that you can just say outright that this squad of players this group that they've brought together just just doesn't cut it in Europe because the talent is there. 
And a lot of these players have, have sort of shown it and done it with other clubs before they came to Manchester. So it's, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm just kind of baffled by, by what's happening there and why it's not working. You say that these are players in their prime, and I think for the most part that's true, but there is something being made of the average age of the City team, especially their starting eleven. Older than perhaps anybody else in the in the tournament, um, I think that's something like twenty nine point six, twenty nine point seven. Is that something? I mean, look, they again they've won two titles. That they've obviously gotten something out of this group, um, and and you starting over is maybe not an option. But certainly, there's an there, there is an argument to be made that if they're older than everybody else, they're relying on uh, some players who are probably past it just a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always deceptive, right? Because you take sort of the, the cumulative age of that squad, and, and it probably looks that way, yeah, because they do have a team of, of players who are all sort of arrived. I mean, there are not a lot of young up-and-comers on that team. Um, but if you look at sort of their key players, that's on company as, as, you know, he's had a difficult few months, but he's he's in his prime. I don't think there's any arguing that. I think Yaya Toure is in his prime. Yeah. He was the player of the year last season. Uh, Kun Aguero, David Silva, yeah. uh, Samir yeah. Nasri, Joe Hart. I mean, all of those guys, I, I think it would be hard to make the argument that they're past it. Um, so, you know, the, the average age is maybe offset a little bit by, you know, a player here or there. I mean, these margins are pretty thin by yeah. and large when you go with these, uh, these sorts of statistics like average age. But I don't think you can point to a player in their starting 11 that's not as good as he was a few years ago. So I don't know that I'd buy that. Okay. Di Michaelis is 34. You mentioned Yaya. He's 31. I think he plays older than 31. I, I, what I saw of that game yesterday, I just wasn't impressed with his movement at all. I don't know what's, you know, I know he's had some injury problems, Leander, and I love Yaya Torre as a player. When he's on top of his game, I'm not sure there's a better box-to-box midfielder in the sport, and yet I just, I don't know, I didn't see it. Maybe it was the atmosphere. Yeah, well, the, the Michaelis is one player in the starting 11, right? And they, they've sort of had that gap, and they, they always had trouble filling the job next to Vesson Company, so... So, so that's a player I'll grant you who who might not be totally at his best. Um, but Toure, the the way he played last year, you, I I just don't think someone drops off that much this year. Okay. I think he might be tired, and I think he might have a few niggling injuries. But that's true for every team. So that's I don't true. know that that that's necessarily an argument. Absolutely. I mean, I I just don't believe that in the last six months he went from being one of the best midfielders in the world to. Uh, to someone who's over the hill. Okay, so Barcelona goes from this dominant performance, a one nothing win, but still dominant, into the weekend and the Clásico, so that should be fascinating to watch. Meanwhile, in the other second leg matchup yesterday, Juventus just took it to Dortmund. Uh, the Dortmund fans, I said this at the, at the top of the show, Leander, the Dortmund fans put on a great performance. It didn't seem the, <laughs> team, the team did the same. No, they didn't, and, and I think that Juve just kind of had a much smarter game. I mean, they absorbed a lot of pressure at times. They they did quite a lot of defending when when uh, for, for stretches, and then they sort of broke out. And they could, they can just be so so effective. I mean, Carlos Tevez scored twice. Uh, he set up Morata for a goal. Um, Tevez, by the way, who it wasn't very long ago, hadn't scored in Europe in like five years or something like that, or maybe it was six or seven. Um, now all of a sudden is is scoring regularly. Um, Ju- Juventus is just it's a team that has won the Serie A a few years in a row now, and that's not a fluke. I mean, that's a league where you just have to be really shrewd and, and savvy tactically more than anything to win that league because, I mean, as, as Michael Bradley has, has reminded us of many times, the, there's probably no league in the world 
that's that's tactically as as astute as as Syria. I mean, for for all the um, for all the issues it's had of late, and for all the star players that have left, I don't know that that that's any less true. I mean, it's still soccer is a game of chess over there, and I think that that Juve just really outsmarted uh, Dortmund. Is there something to be said for Juve? I mean, we just got done talking about the English teams all crashing out of the Champions League. Uh, one team left in the Europa League. Is there something to be said for Juve flying the Serie A flag? It, to an extent, yeah, because I think last year, or maybe it was the year before, was the first time in I don't know how many years where there was no Italian team in the quarterfinals. Or, or um, I don't have the exact statistic in front of me, but basically the, the Italian teams were having the same kind of drought that the English ones are now. Um, I think Juve is, is to an extent the beneficiary of its domestic dominance, and, and it, it could be temporary. Most dominance, dominance tend to be, but right now they're 14 points clear of Roma mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in uh, Serie A, so that maybe they can coast a little bit do- domestically, and they've been able to sort of gobble up a lot of the Italian talent. Um, they've been able to bring in guys like Tevez and Morata, uh, who, who are now, I think, for a lot of other Italian clubs, just out of their budget because they're having so many of them are having financial issues. So they've been able to dominate because Juventus has their own stadium, because they have such a large fan base, uh, because clearly they're generating a lot more revenue than the other teams, which has translated into, you know, if, if we're being honest, a fairly easy go of it domestically, which I think then helps you midweek, like we talked about earlier, um, how for the Premier League teams it can be, or they would argue it would be difficult playing on Wednesdays and Tuesdays when they've just had difficult games on the weekend, I think when you're running the table uh, in your domestic league, it makes life a lot easier yeah. in your continental campaign. But is that, the, is that the deal that some of these, I mean, not that anybody's going to actively go and pursue this sort of course of action, but in order for, for European glory to come for some of these leagues, that there's going to need to be, and, and look, Juve's not, uh, Juve's a traditional power in Italy, clearly, but there's also been AC Milan and Inter and some other clubs who have stepped up to challenge them. But is the deal that you're going to have to have a dominant team or two so that they can do this? So that I mean, look, Real Madrid and Barcelona are locked in a battle for La Liga. They're still progressing in the Champions League. But in England, and I don't, I don't want to overstate the quality of, of the English League across the board, but you could make the argument that maybe it's stronger 1 through 10, 1 through 12 than a lot of these other leagues. Maybe you just need a, a couple of teams to dominate and have some some games are going to win five nothing on the weekend or on uh, midweek to help them. Uh, sorry, mi- uh, I meant on the weekend to help them in the Champions League. Well, I don't really buy the argument that that the Premier League is supposed to be deeper one through twenty because the only metric that we have is is kind of the Europa League, right. where we can measure you know teams five through eight or five through nine or or whatever it happens to be for that country. And I think Spain has had so much success in the Europa League in recent years, and, and England so little of it, that I think you'd have a hard time convincing me that 1 through 10, the Premier League is stronger than, uh, than the Spanish League. Okay. But what you do tend to see is that teams that play in leagues where they're sort of part of an oligopoly, right? Where they're, or duopoly, where it's two or three or four teams that are sort of dominating, and everybody else that, that's sort of fending for scraps, um, I, I think they have that advantage in Europe because it just allows them to rotate rotate their team a little bit and and then you know show up just sort of more fresh for their European games. I yeah. mean, you saw that with Barcelona last year, where 
Cesc Fabregas, for instance, was mostly playing La Liga games and was mostly on the bench for the Champions League games. I mean, when you have a guy like Cesc that you can um, that you can rotate into your team just just for the La Liga games, right. and and that of course is a consequence of Barcelona's financial might over the other Spanish teams where it can hoard talent like that, it absolutely gives you an advantage. So there is some validity there for the English league to say, you know, there are so many good teams here that uh, that we're just more tired. But at the same time, like I said, I'm not sure that I buy that their competition is that much better. Sure. Uh, I mean, regardless, we do have a 1% situation when it comes to European club football. And what you've got here is eight clubs, not all of them representing the one percent, and what that leaves me with, Leander, is and and I'm I am a complete neutral when it comes to this competition. I'm not rooting for anybody that's left. I really didn't have a horse in the race before before this, so I'm sitting here thinking to myself, okay, you know, if if anything, I want either Atleti to get back to the final and win it this time, or Porto to break it up. Even though, yeah, they they won the competition within the last uh, ten or eleven years, They're, the the situation has changed enough that they are really a big underdog. Is that is that where people are going to come to? If you're not a Madrid fan or a or, or Barcelona fan or a Bayern Munich fan, you've got to be rooting for the little guy, littler guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's there's really just kind of one little guy left, and that would be Porto because you know Real and Barca obviously are juggernauts. Uh, Atletico Madrid is is I think at this point we'd probably have to say one of the best run clubs in Europe, and and they have been that for a while now because they they do spectacularly well. At when they lose their key players at replacing them cheaply or or at a, at a fair price, um, so it's it's hard to argue that that Atletico isn't sort of one of the heavyweights of Europe at this point. And then there's Bayern Munich and Juve and Paris Saint Germain and Monaco, who are who are both uh, propped up by a huge amount of cash. Mm-hmm. Um, Porto, meanwhile, is is sort of a giant of, of Portuguese soccer. Apparently, the the Portuguese league has become something of a clearinghouse for. Um, powerful agents and uh, and third party owners mm-hmm. to to sort of cycle their players through on the way to uh, to more market value. But yeah, it's it's gotten to the point where it's it's so hard now for smaller clubs, relatively, you know, quote unquote. Yes, um, right, exactly. <laughs> to, to push through that that. <laughs> You know, if you're a neutral fan, the, the, those are the teams you'll gravitate to. It, 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 we'll see the draw tomorrow. Should be fascinating to see which teams match up with uh, uh, with each other in this competition as we move down to the quarterfinals. Leander, while I have time with you, I think it's uh, it's necessary to take a little bit of a turn and talk about Gedeon's LLM. Uh, you have uh, you have a piece up in American Soccer now, which I read yesterday, that makes a pretty compelling argument that Gedeon's LLM should pass on playing for the United States of America and accept the call ups to Germany. Perhaps you know put himself in a situation to maybe one day play. For the Germans, um, you're going to, I don't know that you're going to upset fans. I, I'd love to hear what the reaction has been, uh, because I think it's a, I think it's a, a legitimate argument from, from Zell point of view. Certainly Americans would love to see him play for, uh, for the United States. Now, just sum this up for me. Why, why would Zell be better served to play for the Germans? Well, I think, first of all, we have to set patriotism aside here and, and accept that while players make a lot of noise about this is my country and this is my home and I consider myself American, ultimately, 90% of the time, at least, they're going to do what's best for their careers, right? I mean, Jermaine Jones, 
you know, for, for all his, you know, his, his tattoos of American flags and everything, didn't become a U.S. international until it was pretty clear that he wasn't getting back onto the German team. I mean, that's just the truth. Um, as for Zelalem, it's, you know, he's, he's 18. He, he says he feels American. Of course, he's saying that as he's getting ready to play for America. The argument with him is, is that um, it might be best to stick with the German program if that means he's going to be in the national teams for a little while longer. Because what I've, I've said in my column is that the U.S. lately has had such a rush in, in bringing young players through to the senior national team that I think in a lot of cases it can be harmful. And this isn't just a Klinsman thing. I mean, it was happening before him, although I would argue that he accelerated this effect with Julian Green and maybe John Anthony Brooks and um, bringing in guys even, even earlier, um, whereas maybe his predecessors didn't have as much choice and Klinsman has a little bit more depth. But if you look at the track record of guys like Agudelo, and obviously there's the Freddie Adu example, and Breck Shea, and um, you know Josie Altidore for a long while, the, the track record of guys coming through early has been sort of harmful to their club careers mm-hmm. because there, there would be a lot of expectation. Usually there would be a big transfer following this sort of early flurry of international games, and they would just not be ready for it. And the, the feedback I've gotten to the stories, a lot of people have said, yeah, well, you know, national teams don't develop, don't develop the players. They don't raise them. The, their clubs do. But I think what being on a senior national team early does is it gets you noticed mm-hmm. and you start to be thought of as this prodigy and it tends to accelerate your club career as well. And I think in, in these cases, in a way that's that's just not been helpful. No, I don't. I don't think that's. Uh, I don't think that's good for a player's psyche. Certainly, I don't know Zelalem. I don't know his his mentality. Uh, this could be just about loyalty. But you certainly can see that playing for the United States potentially makes him, you know, a phenom. Whereas playing for Germany, maybe this is overstating it uh, just a little bit, but j- playing for Germany makes him just another young German talent. Um, and, and that that may be better. And, and there's certainly a lot of people in this country who would argue. That that we overhype young players, regardless of whether or not they make the senior national team. That it starts even earlier. That the U seventeens have players who are getting way too much attention and way too much love. And and maybe this is across all of football, Leander, not just a U.S. Um, phenomenon, but it perhaps is most noticeable because the United States is a an aspiring country who's trying to get over that last hump or two before they become a, a real player on the world stage. But there's also that that disconnect when you talk about the player. You're asking, I'm not You're saying you're asking for Zelalem to make this choice, but you're suggesting that Zelalem make a choice that ultimately does take him out of the spotlight. That's not usually how players think. It's not how players think, but I think if they're advised well and if they're guided well, it's it's how they, they should act. Because what what you just see again and again and again is that when that spotlight does come early, there are just really few players that can handle that. Mm. And if, like you say, if Zelalem goes with Germany, he's just another talent. And probably if he goes with Germany, he's, he's realistically, he's three, four, or five years away from making it to the senior national team. Mm. Whereas Jurgen Klinsmann has said that Zelalem could help the U.S. senior national team now. Yeah, well, um, that, and let me so, stop you there real quick, Lander, because you sort of gave uh, Klinsmann a bit of a pass saying this has happened before, and it has. With, with Altidore and Agudelo, as you mentioned, I think you referenced Freddie Adu. Clearly, his star was on a rocket ship and no one could stop it. 
uh, until he himself did. But I think Klinsman deserves some pretty harsh criticism for the way he handled Julian Green and the way he's setting up to handle LLM. I agree with you completely, because uh, I think that he's accelerated this effect. He didn't invent it, but he's made it worse. Um, Julian Green was not by any stretch of the imagination, in retrospect or at the time, ready to play in a World Cup. He played three minutes with Barcelona's senior team. And what's Bayern more, Munich. what we discovered later, he was injured. Yeah. Um, he wasn't really fit until the Belgium game. Right. So, you know, that, that was a spot on the roster. You know, I, I hate to bring up Lennon Donovan, but that's a spot that could have gone to someone who was ready to help. And Green was just not. And we'll, we'll probably never know whether some type of deal was struck there where he agreed to, to join the U.S. if he got to come to this World Cup. Um, everybody involved, of course, denies it. But I, I can't find a whole lot of other rationale, even if he did score on his first touch against Belgium, um, to, to bring a guy like that along. I just, I just don't understand um, how that helped really anybody in this process. And again, we come to this, this, this disconnect between what Jurgen Klinsmann says so often or the messages he sends and his actions. He says... That that play, you know, he says that players should, as you said in the in the piece, actually, he says that players should play for the the highest level. Clearly, he's got a vested interest here in getting Zellalem into the U.S. squad, but it's also about you know pushing these players too much. I, I know he says he wants players to get criticism and to to have to answer for that and and to to live in that crucible, but to to rush these guys before they're ready, I think goes against sort of the the mentality that Klinsman has put out there that you have to put in the work that if you're not doing what's necessarily to, necessary to make yourself indispensable, why would you be in the team? Yeah, it's, it's one of the men's many, many, many contradictions. And, you know, it's, I think it's true for John Anthony Brooks as well. And like you say, if you're supposed to earn it with him, if you're supposed to aspire and thrive, or, and before you can, you can be in the national team, if it's such a privilege, then, then why bring these guys in so long before they're, they're obviously ready to come in? Um, the, there is a disconnect there for me. I don't really understand it. I, what I do understand is that he operates in a global marketplace and he has to bring these guys on board early so yeah. that they don't wind up going with some other pro, uh, country, some, some other program. But what I think is just as true for Zellalem is let's say he develops as he's supposed to and he stays in the German program, right? Let's say he carves out a job at Arsenal and he becomes this, you know, he becomes the next Fabregas, as, as someone called him, which I don't think is helpful either. No. Um, <laughs> let, let's say he, he, he really is the truth and he's the answer and, and he's all these things that we think he's going to be. Um, and he doesn't, he, he stays with the German program, you know, he goes through the under 18, the under 19, the under 21, etc. And if he doesn't break into the senior national team there, and there's always a, a big sort of backlog of talent in, in the German senior national team. He could always make that switch later. No. I don't understand what the rush is. I don't, I don't get it either. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating situation, though. Obviously, as a, as a U.S. fan, I, I'm anxious to see what he can do. But I don't, I, I don't think he's ready, and I am worried about him being, quote-unquote, ruined by this, by this uh, process. Leander Shalakins, go read that piece at American Soccer Now, Leander Shalakins at Leander Alphabet. On Twitter, and by the way, this seems to be a moot point anyway, Leander, because he is no longer listed on the uh, DFB website as part of that U18 German side. So that's uh, seems like sure, that but lives- he, he can still change his mind. No, he certainly can, as long as he doesn't play in a, a sanctioned uh, a, a sanctioned FIFA tournament. Well, okay, there's that whole citizenship thing. Whatever, we'll put this to the <laughs> side, Leander. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it.
My pleasure. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to grab David Cartledge from over in Spain. We'll talk about the Spanish team's fortunes in the Champions League, uh, certainly, but also El Clasico coming up this weekend. Big, big matchup. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning, brought to you by WorldSoccerTalk.com. Every soccer fan in the world knows that the biggest match of the year is El Clasico between Barcelona and Real Madrid. It's your chance to witness Cristiano Ronaldo, Lido Messi, and more of the greatest players in the world. The best way to watch is with Dish World and their exclusive broadcast from BN Sports. Dish World is the number one live international TV service in the U.S. It's a safe and legal streaming service that delivers your favorite sports and more to your TV, tablet, phone, and computer. For just $10 a month, you can watch El Clasico, plus La Liga, Serie A, and Copa America, as well as the New York Cosmos, Chelsea TV, Arsenal TV, and others with One World Sports and more top networks offered by Dish World. There's no commitment, no annual contract, and no satellite dish needed. Don't miss El Clasico on Sunday, March 22nd. Sign up today at www.dishworld.com. Hey there, it's Jason Davis, and if you're like me and love playing fantasy soccer games, I want to let you know about a fantastic new game called Draft11.com. This is not your usual fantasy soccer game. Draft11.com is different for two major reasons. First, it's a daily fantasy soccer game, and second, it gives you an opportunity to win cash. So instead of playing an entire season and competing against, say, the 3 million people who play fantasy Premier League and winning nada, You can play Draft11.com over one match day against up to 10 people. And if your team wins, you win. Cash, not points. So go ahead and support our new sponsor that's helping bring Soccer Morning to you every single day. Head over to Draft11.com, sign up for a free account, and take a shot at trying to win some cold, hard cash. Thanks. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. We turn now to Spain. Our friend David Cartledge on the line with me. Talk uh, La Liga, Champions League for the Spanish teams and Europa League as well. Big matchup tonight. David, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Nice to be joining you as usual. It's a, it's a good time for Spanish football. All three of the Champions League representatives are through to the quarterfinals. Uh, Real Madrid by the skin of their teeth. Uh, Barcelona with a dominant performance against City yesterday to close that out. Now, and obviously Atletico Madrid, by the skin of their teeth as well, with uh, with penalties over Bayer Leverkusen. Um, at this point, is it just uh, that obvious that Barcelona is the most likely of these teams to win the title? Or would you give uh, Atleti a decent chance? And, and Real Madrid can always turn things around. Um, I think right now you've you've got to look at the momentum and you look at how they are they are starting to peak at this. Incredible! This incredible! This business time of the season, um. So you 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 have to back Barcelona at the moment. That's the, the sensible thing to do. Obviously, you can't write Real Madrid off, but Barcelona are playing at a spectacular level right now. And uh, I think last night they they showcased it um, better than they have in in a while, despite this form. And then it, it times perfectly with uh, with El Clasico what's coming up this weekend. 
Absolutely, they are uh, riding high. As I mentioned, uh, that the, the Real Madrid lost to Schalke and, and the fallout from it, and sort of the way that, that Cristiano Ronaldo reacted to, to, to that game and some of the things that were said, and I believe he indicated he's not going to speak to the press again until the end of the season. Is, there, is that continuing? Is there more to that? than uh, Is there a belief that perhaps Real Madrid is really crumbling right now? Um, I think there's definitely been something wrong for quite a while. Something has happened in the dressing room. Um, there is some sort of divide, but we haven't. it hasn't really come out fully what it is yet. And then I think with the form dipping a little bit, maybe following on from that, it, it kind of comes to a head. And then at the weekend, we had the latest incident where Ronaldo looked to have mouthed some abuse at uh, Real Madrid fans um, after a there was an offside call and um, it was the right one and it was just a bit of a strange set of play basically and uh, the Real Madrid fans started booing, whistling and Ronaldo turned around put his hands on his hips and kind of nodded his head in a sarcastic manner and, and kind of made a face of like oh really that's how it's going to be yeah. and then he mouthed something towards the fans so that isn't good it creates a bit of a toxic environment I mean it's been toxic for a while in the Bernabeu but right now um, with that it was really poor we have the uh, we have the draw tomorrow uh, for the quarterfinals. Uh, it's an open draw. Everybody can play everybody else. When you look at what the possibilities are, um, you know, again, it, 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 they could get any of these Spanish teams could get anybody else, including each other. What's the worst case scenario, rather than the best? Because I imagine that you could put Porto in that box or Monaco in that box. Um, who's the best matchup, or who's the worst matchup for Real Madrid concerning the way things are going right now? I think any of the other Spanish teams, I think that's the thing. They, they don't want to play each other at all. You look at the reaction when Sevilla and Villarreal drew each other in the, in the Europa League, and both managers were, united, were just exactly the same with their, with their opinion. We didn't want to face the other Spanish side who was left, and it's going to fall back the same in the Champions League. They don't want to face each other. They are, they are the most dangerous threat to, to each other in this competition. And that, that may sound arrogant or a bit confident in terms of the Spanish teams, but they are because they know each other better than anybody else. If Barcelona or Real Madrid faces a Bayern Munich, they can maybe work them out, the things, do things that other German teams kind of do to Bayern Munich, so they can look at that and exploit that. With Atletico and Real Madrid and Barcelona, if they face each other, it again it presents the same more problems. And especially for Real Madrid, they just cannot get a win over <laughs> Atletico Madrid. So if, if the Madrid teams are paired with each other, that will be enough. I think both teams will be really unhappy with that. How do you kind of look? Things can change in a month, David. We know that. And, and obviously there is La Liga to play for and, and the Classico coming up this weekend, and we'll certainly touch on that. But how do you account for the defensive problems that Real Madrid had in losing that game? And, and again, I, I find it fascinating the sort of difference between Real Madrid losing 4-3 to Schalke and, and advancing. And Atletico Madrid needing sort of a lucky deflection in order to equalize against Leverkusen, and then using penalties to advance, and they that for them that's uh, you know a reason to celebrate, and they're looking strong heading into the next round, while the Giants uh, down the road are, are not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Atleti were really rocked in that tie too. Bayer Leverkusen took the game to them, in, uh, especially in the first leg. I think Bayer. Go a little bit of confused over their strategy in, uh, in, in the second leg. They didn't really know how to approach Atleti at this point. They didn't know whether to, to stick or twist. And Atleti, um, I think they were, they were superior narrowly over the course of that tie. And I, I think Atleti get a lot of respect because the way they play, the, 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 the way they fight, from the neutral, I should say, um, on that. 
and I think that's what gets them a bit more respect in that sense. And, and obviously, they don't, they, they can't buy Hannes Rodriguez and, and so on. So people maybe respect that and, and fight for them a little bit more. With Real Madrid again, you know, there has to be a, a complete performance every single time. We, we said, we, I think I said to you last time we spoke, there needs to be a response in this uh, shout again. We're actually talking about the fair and that second leg, and we said there needs to be a major response. And it just wasn't there. And the fans were so angry that they couldn't do that, that this adversity didn't turn them into the beast that they once were. And, and that was really, really concerning. And, and, and still now they just look a little bit shaky and the confidence isn't there running through Real Madrid. They look, they look scared to make a mistake, basically, in case the fans are on their backs. And, and also within the team as well. If one mistake looks like a, it's like a pack of cards, they could just fall at any time. They are they are one point back of Barcelona with that matchup coming this weekend on Sunday. Uh, the Clásico is clearly the biggest match in Spain, perhaps the biggest match in Europe, perhaps one of the biggest matches in the world. And we have teams coming in on, on completely different trajectories. That doesn't mean it's going to play out the way we expect it to, David. But at the same time, you can see you could easily see Barcelona and the way that uh, the form that they're in, Suarez and, and and Messi and Neymar just taking it to their rivals. Yeah, you really can. If they play, if Barcelona play with that intensity, nobody can live with them. I don't think, I, especially with that with that front three. And right now, Neymar's uh, form is perhaps not on the extremely high level there it once was. He might get that back towards the end of the season, but to facilitate, to, to make up for that, you've got Luis Suarez in the form that he's in. And you see, if they play with our intensity, even the racket was excellent last night, I thought, obviously, Messi is Messi, Suarez, uh, Mascherano as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if they play like that, then no, no, but I don't think anybody can uh, live with them, and, and Real Madrid must fear that. But like you say, history has shown form coming into this game it doesn't really count for that much. It, it is a, you know, it's not a derby and as such, but it, it is a derby sort of game. Anything can happen form before it doesn't matter. It's what happens over that ninety minutes. It's um, it's in, I know City is not Real Madrid by any stretch of the imagination, but City is a talented team. And what Barcelona did yesterday came without Sergio Busquets in the lineup. Um, is what's his what's his status first of all? Because I don't want to assume anything. I haven't seen. And how how does that change things for Barcelona against Madrid? as opposed to, the, to how it changed things against City? Yeah. Well, first things first, Busquets trained as normal today with the group. So he was on his normal training path today. He completed that session. So everything looked fine then. But, you know, there's, there's still there. They'll have one more they'll have a training session uh, tomorrow as well. And maybe Busquets might do a little bit of extra work if he needs to, if he needs to catch up. So he's, he's looking okay. And, and Luis Enrique has been uh, careful about what he said about Busquets, uh, Sergio Busquets as well. And, um, he seemed last night, I think he seems confident that uh, Busquets will play. But I mean, even if he does, Mascherano played really well last night and, and he can slot in there. With, with Mascherano and Rakitic, you, you get a lot of, you get a lot of, I think you get a bit more intensity, a bit more speed across the way, the way Barcelona knocked the ball about. Um, but I mean, Busquets is obviously, if Busquets plays, that's a huge factor as well. But I think Barca can handle things if, uh, if he doesn't play. Uh, you mentioned this already. Let's turn to the Europa League. Villarreal and Sevilla, uh, who have drawn each other, much to their chagrin, play tonight. Set the set us up for that match. And hey, look again, the Europa League gets uh, short shrift sometimes, especially when the Champions League has just happened. Uh, but this is still a big competition, and we've got a tradition of Spanish teams winning it and being very good in it. And, and if you win it, you get a Champions League spot next year. So set us up for this. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, 3-1 at the moment um, from the first leg at El Madrigal. So Villarreal conceded three away goals. 
the the game was incredible. It was just an intense affair. The whole ninety minutes, it was just incredible. We had a we had the quickest goal in Europa League history, um, from Vitolo, which set the night up. And then immediately after, Villarreal went down the other end and hit the bar. And that that was the first ninety seconds, and it really set up for the rest of the game. It, it was completely. It was just breathless. It was one of the best ties I've seen all year in um, in any league or any competition. Um, and then tonight. Villarreal are going to have to come out the blocks in a similar way that Sevilla did, basically. But with that, knowing that they're going to have to have a little bit of caution because they got ripped apart on the counter-attack. And Sevilla are very much a team set up to destroy others on the counter-attack with maybe three, four players playing extremely direct. So this one's going to be a really, it's going to be a really interesting one. And it does, touching on your point, it matters a lot to these teams, like a, a hell of a lot, because they know they're not going to win the, they're not going to win La Liga, um, you know, anytime soon. So if they're in a competition that they can, they can possibly get away to the final in, and they've had experiences doing well in, in Sevilla's case, then. Yes, they'll they'll go for it again, and Sevilla want to um, retain that trophy. Uh, two things of note here, uh, sort of odds and ends, as I get ready to let you go, David. First, uh, Diego Simeone's contract situation—it it seems to be very close to a done deal. He's going to stay at, at, at Atleti. Now we know that contracts don't always—you know—they're always worth the paper that they're printed on, and yet this seems to be a confirmation that Simeone's going to stay loyal to Atleti. He's going to stick around. He's going to make this his life's work, or at least uh, for the next uh, uh, seven or eight years, his life's work? Yes. So at the moment, um, his sister, uh, who is also his representative, spoke um, out and she said that the deal is, um, Aleti fans are happy tonight, and this is in regards to beating Bayer Leverkusen, but in a few more days, they will have an even bigger reason to be happy. She was, of course, talking about Diego Simeone's contract, and by the sounds of it, it looks like it's going to be agreed until 2020. Which, uh, which is uh, it's okay. a big deal yeah. um, so, for, so, for Diego Simeone, a man who said he, he doesn't see himself staying at a club for a long, long time. Um, but I think I think it's the right move from Simeone. I think I, I let you're going to go over another stage. I think of development and progression over the transition over the over the next maybe year, two years. And Simeone should be the man to, to oversee that, bring the young players in, the likes of Oliver Torres back from Porto. And then the likes of Saul to, to come through a little bit more. They've got a fantastic young Argentinian, uh, Angel Correa. Um, so he will he will have to overlook that. And I think this is a, a incredible news for him. All right, last things uh, last thing here. Paul Pogba reportedly said he does not want to play at Real Madrid. Something about uh, players being discarded there. He's obviously a, a target for for the big clubs. He's he's an incredibly talented player. Came off injured in the Champions League yesterday. I'm sure he'll be fine. Is there anything to that story? Um, you know, ultimately, if Real Madrid comes calling, do you think he would change his mind and, and end up in Madrid? Um, I think Pogba would would have to listen. He'll have to judge what is what is better for his um, career. And I think Zinedine Zidane will be hanging around. And of course, like in the past with French players, he's he's tried to have a little word in their ear and say, "Look, Real Madrid's a good move," like he did with pointed out that Varane was a good player coming through um, in France, and Real Madrid obviously picked him up and. Zidane's a big presence in, in French football. He might have a word with Paul Pogba, but Pogba's a very strong-willed young man. I think he'll make his own decisions along with uh, you know, Riola, his, uh, his agent. So he could end up anywhere. I think I don't know. I, I still think personally, from my point of view, that uh, PSG and Manchester United are, are really well-placed to get Pogba. Yep. David Cartledge, follow him on Twitter. It's David, J-A-C-A, to spell that out. So David, appreciate your time and your insight. As always, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Enjoy the Classic, everybody. Enjoy the Classic. Let's uh, take a break. When we come back, we will open up the phone lines, 
6276. By the way, check out dishworld.com. Sign up if you're looking to see El Clasico on BN Sport this weekend. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Open phone lines, 347-756-6276. Jump on in. Lots of good European football chat today, but we can also turn to the U.S. And the LLM issue is out there. Robert in L.A. is on the phone. What's up, Robert? Hey, morning, Jason. I wanted to ask you two, two questions on my I listened to yesterday's episode. You had a lot of callers from uh, talking about NYCFC. Okay, that wasn't yesterday. That was the day before, but go ahead. Or the day before, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to ask you, do you think that a lot of, they're all talking about how they've never gone to a Red Bull Arena, and since Red Bull was being played last week, pretty much so NYFC had like a, pretty much the whole week to themselves. Do you see attendance going down for... Red Bull fans, because they say they can go to Yankee Stadium because it's more convenient for them. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to make it that judgment until I see what happens um, at Red Bull Arena this weekend. I, I would imagine that it's possible that you might see a dip, but it's not like it's not like Red and Red Bulls. They've gotten good crowds there, but it's not like they've been consistently good with twenty thousand every week. So I, I imagine that you may see. I don't want to connect the dots. Is what I'm saying. I don't want to connect. Because it's a team that has traditionally been up and down with attendance, I wouldn't want to conduct, say, a a fifteen thousand, sixteen thousand crowd at Red Bull Arena to to NYCFC. I, I wouldn't want to do that. At least, at least okay, not yeah. not based on too early, early evidence. Tell. Yeah, too early to tell, Robert. Exactly. What else? Okay. Uh, okay. One more thing. Um, uh, throughout the week, I was looking at um. Uh, coverage of ML, uh, MLS, especially NYCFC, and especially New York coverage. And I don't, I don't know. I'm just looking at this from the other side. or from uh, Whenever they talk about NYCFC, they never talk about, like, you know, analyzing the game. They, they're talking about, like, the popularity of the sport. Like, I watch all these, like, sports people. Like, who, who <laughs> and they always talk about, like, uh, who, uh, who and, uh, about? you know, in Robert, who, sports who, guys, you know, on, on ESPN radio, stuff like that. Oh, you mean the guys who are not soccer guys? Yes, and okay. then they're always talking about like the popularity of sports, like FIFA fifteen, and how we're still in that area. Robert, we are still in we are still in that growth period when it comes to soccer's profile in the U.S. and and I've been consistent with my refrain here. If soccer was a major portion of the traditional sports talk discussion, and I mean not hey how many people were in the stands or hey, that was uh, really exciting, or, oh, look at all the, uh, the, the millennials are coming. If they actually talk about the games, if, if they went yeah. on, if ESPN radio host got on the air and said, wow, did you see David Villa this weekend? Man, he can really play. Uh, uh, there's a great assist by Grabovoy. And, oh, you know, did you see how well, yeah. um, you know, how, how well these guys played together? Jason Christ has really got them clicking. If they did that, I wouldn't have a job. 
I wouldn't have a job, Robert. There'd be no <laughs> reason. You'll be the number one. There'd be, be no, number one. Well, okay. I, there'd be no reason for me to be here. We have a, a rich and varied uh, sports culture in this country. We have American football. We have basketball. We have baseball. We have hockey. We've got all these other things, tennis and golf and, and whatever else comes up, NASCAR. That's all part of one big discussion on sports talk radio outlets, whether it's ESPN Radio, CBS Sports, Fox, your local station. When they come on the air, they don't go, well, we're just going to talk about this one thing today, unless it's the NFL that sometimes dominates. They go, we're going to talk about all these things that are happening. College basketball is happening right now. But they're also going to drop in spring training updates and all this other stuff. If soccer was on that level, if it met the, le- if it met the criteria to be on the level of tennis when the U.S. Open happens, I wouldn't have a job. And we're not there yet. We're still in that, oh, how big is soccer? And is soccer going to be bigger? And how many people are going to come out to this game? I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't know, Robert. I don't know what to tell you other than that's just going to continue for another generation or so. Yeah, oh, hopefully not. But uh, anyway, thanks for taking my call. Jamie. No problem. Work. Robert uh, in L.A. Now Guillermo's on the air. What's up, Guillermo? Hey, uh, good morning, everybody. Well, the, this uh, conversation about Salem is, is very interesting to me. I've seen the same thing happen to the, the Santos brothers, uh, to a couple of other kids in the Mexican uh, uh, system that honestly haven't panned out. Maybe now they're playing in the Europa League, you know, they're, they're middle of the table, uh, bottom of the table in the Premier, uh, but they haven't done anything. Yeah. Uh, and some of them will be sort of the same thing. And, and you know, that's part for the course, right? CONCACAF is not the top tier, and we have to be happy with what we got. I mean, we will eventually build it with 300 million Americans. But yeah. You know, this is what we got. Well, I also think there's an argument, Guillermo, that, that says that, you know, you got to take your chance because you never know when this is going to come around again. And I, and, and again, I'm, I'm conservative enough when it comes to player development to think that Delalem's not ready and that if Klinsman rushes him, he does risk spoiling him. But he's also a really good, talented player, and there's just not that many of those players in the U.S. system. Why are you going to hold him back if he can help you now? Clemson's- That's exactly right. I mean, who, who would be the one that you would say would stay out Right, because you bring Salomon. I, I can't think of a single name that is at the same level. Well, I, 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 I do. I appreciate the call, Guillermo. I, I do believe that there's, you know, you would have to reform some things in order to get Zelalem into a position where he can be comfortable, protected, and effective. But that's a discussion for another time. Seven oh four, you're on the air. Hey, Jason. It's Cam. Um, great show today, and I'm glad that you uh, that soccer is where it is, where you do have a job. <laughs> Appreciate so thanks that. for all that you do. Yeah, let's let's just keep it. No, I'm kidding. I'm not one of those guys who says let's keep soccer niche and and underground so that so that we can be all the cool kids in the room talking about a sport while all those other people go and bang their heads against the wall with other things. I want I want soccer to be big. I'm not going to preach about it. I'm not going to go out in the streets and say if you don't like soccer, you're stupid. It's a great sport. I think that's the wrong way to go. But I am glad that for the time being, there's enough, there's a, there's a niche enough for me to have a job, Cam. What's up? Absolutely, partner. And uh, I feel the exact same way. I'd rather have the niche in the market be where you're talking about it because you know the sport and the other mass major media. They don't really know. They can't talk about um, individual player performance like, for example, CCL. Well, you know, Piotti's excellent sure. gold, yeah. Dominic Aduro's wonderful pass in the box. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, since we're, this is Champions League, a Champions League show, I want to talk about CCL. Because mm-hmm. for me, as a soccer fan, what Montreal is doing is 
absolutely mind-blowing when you consider this team is still in preseason mode. I just want to get your thoughts. Well, no, I mean, obviously, they're, they're into their regular season, but they're still a brand-new team in terms of the composition of it. You got Nigel Rio Coker that, uh, in that team, and obviously, Piotti has been excellent. Cameron Porter's a rookie and has sort of come out of nowhere his first start uh, last night in the Champions League, and he played excellent. Damo Duro was as good as I've seen Domino Duro in quite some time, although I know he didn't score himself and probably had some opportunities. But in terms of being dangerous, and look, we know he's got speed, but he made some good decisions in that game that I think is very encouraging, especially with Justin Mapp out, because that was the thought. Montreal's not going to be not going to have enough firepower to threaten Aloualenze if they don't have Absolutely. Justin Mapp, and they, they overcame that. And But here's the thing, Cam, and I'll, I'm going to say this as I let you go. I'm sure. I'm still dreading that trip to Costa Rica for Montreal. I'm rooting for him. I'm still dreading that trip to Montreal or to, to Costa Rica for Montreal because we just have too much history of MLS teams going down there and falling apart. And they and Montreal themselves, pre MLS, have a history of going to Mexico with a lead ba- built on a home leg and falling apart against the Mexican side. So there, there's yeah, I totally agree, Jason. I just think that their defense is a lot more sophisticated. That they know how to balance attack as well as defense, and, but we'll just have to see. I really was hoping they were going to get another goal, but again, they played smart. And I, can't, I have to say that in the past, MLS teams have not played the Champions League smart. Yeah. And Don Maduro did an excellent job. I totally agree. Thanks, Jason. Have I a great day. Thanks for the call, Cam. I, look, they played very well. As you said, they played very smartly. I, I am concerned about what's going to happen in Costa Rica. CONCACAF has a tradition of, uh, of throwing up the dodgy calls and the like. I mean, Bakari Samari barged into, and I, I don't remember the, the Alawalense player's name, but barged into somebody in the box last night. And if that call, ha- if that situation happens in Costa Rica, I can see it becoming a penalty. Washington, what's up, man? Hey, what's up, Jason? I wanted to continue on with this CONCACAF uh, uh, Champions League talk. Yesterday was my wife's birthday, so it took a half a day. We went. I took her to a restaurant where they happened to be showing the Barcelona-Man City game. And the place was full. The place was hopping. The place was, you know, it was great, right? Then I, then I, um, you know, later that night, there's the, the um, Montreal game, and it's like crickets, right? Yeah. I'm just wondering if, and, and you, you tell me what you think. We in MLS, we're trying to build our league. Should we be playing in the Champions League at this point? I mean, we're, we're trying to get our own league up, is that the right thing? I mean, I could be wrong. I think maybe we should concentrate. We shouldn't spread ourselves uh, you know. too thin and just concentrate on one thing at a time. Because you're right, we're not at that point where, um, you know, Sports Center and, and Fox Sports and all these people are commenting on the quality of the game. It's all about you know how many people are going to show up. Can, can we get to that point where we, people concentrate on the quality of the game if we spread ourselves out too thin? You know, I've been disillusioned by the Champions League in CONCACAF the last couple of years, partly because the MLS teams keep failing. And, and as an MLS fan, that, that disheartens me. And then I've kind of, as a defense mechanism, said I don't care about that competition anymore. But I do think it is growing, certainly in some of the other places around the region. And I think that MLS has to compete in Washington. I think it's, I think it's too... It's too important a notion to go and win that thing, and I don't care about the Club World Cup, but just being there would bring MLS some uh, some attention that they wouldn't get otherwise. I-, I know that the mainstream media, sports media, may not pay attention to that, but I think among soccer fans and those people that were out at that bar watching Barcelona play Man City yesterday, but would, you know, but would never pay attention to the Champions League and never pay attention to MLS, I think you kind of have to do it for them.
I hear you. All right, man. All right, Jason. Thanks. Oh, Washington calling in. I had uh, I had somebody else on the line. They seem to have dropped off. So Trevor is telling me that Parma has been declared bankrupt by an Italian court, so that's bad news for Parma, certainly, and for Italian football in general. And perhaps we'll uh, look deeper into that and what that might mean coming up. Speaking of Gideon Zalalem and dual international youth players, young guys who have yet to really make their mark at the professional level, and Zalalem does have a couple of uh, professional appearances under his belt, but he's by no uh, he's he's nowhere near a finished product. I I had the opportunity to talk to, and I'll 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 tweet this out on my Twitter account, Davis JSN when it's posted, but I had the opportunity to talk to a kid who is Mexican-American who has played for or been in camp with the U.S. 18s and recently with the Mexico U18s. And I'm just, I, again, I've come to this conclusion that these kids are not making these choices. They're not playing for these countries based on some, based on some, some strong sense of, of patriotic pride they're not made there's uh, maybe zellalem is maybe he feels american and wants to play and that's why he wants to play for the u.s but i think that's fairly rare this kid in particular very nice kid seemed to say hey look my parents are mexican i'm american i'll play for whoever wants me because i love both countries mike and philly you're on the air hey jason i just wanted to expand a little on what washington was saying about champions league and how you were saying you're a little disenchanted um if MLS teams start consistently competing and defying all every year, I don't even mean winning it every year, but I'm saying maybe appearing in the final, uh, maybe winning every couple years, making appearances in Club World Cup regularly, do you think that would significantly start to spur more interest for the competition? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think you'd have uh, I think you'd have MLS fans who maybe skip those midweek games, making it out. I think you'd have some people maybe watching on television who don't otherwise. I do think there's a ceiling for that competition. You're still playing against teams that the average American soccer fan doesn't know for the most part. They might I mean they certainly know Club America. They'll know some of those Mexican sides we we've seen over the past couple of years. Um some of those teams go on and, and compete in in the World Club World Cup. But Alawalense and Erediano and um, even Saprisa to a certain extent, and that's just the Costa Rican teams, are off the radar for a lot of people. Now, the competition could also pull up uh, uh, awareness of those teams, and that'd be good for the region. I, I mean, I, I do think that there's sort of a limit to how big the Champions League could be in this part of the world, considering it pales in comparison to the UEFA competition and to the Copa Libertadores. But there is some growth allowed. I mean, there's some growth possible, Mike. So, uh, okay, so to follow up on that, and I, I'm always sort of drawing almost comparisons to the struggles <laughs> that CCL has to the struggles the U.S. Open Cup has. What has the higher ceiling out of those two competitions? In this country, the U.S. Open Cup has a higher ceiling, if, you'd ask, if you ask me. I, I, I just, I, I mean, I think, I think that ultimately that competition can, can attract some imagination that we're not getting out of it right now. I I I th- I like the U.S. Open Cup. I wish it was bigger. I, I wish it was. I wish we had a final that any, that came anywhere close to what you get at Wembley. Even that, even if the FA Cup has has declined in importance, they still make a big deal out of that. The semifinals are at Wembley. The finals at Wembley. Maybe you're not going to get a hundred thousand people out in the U.S., but you could fill up twenty. You could put twenty thousand people in a building to watch that game happen on a weekend when it you know when it's when it can draw some attention. I don't know. I, it's you're really flipping a coin for me, Mike. It's very tough. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I'm just again with, with the comparisons. 
what it comes down to me is you'll get interest in the local markets with the local teams competing. And then once you get out to the, because I mean, Montreal, what, they packed in 30,000 these yeah. past two games? Yeah. I mean, there's appeal if it's your team competing. I think the big hurdle is getting interest when it's, Right, right, and and look, the the beginning of the Champions League draws attention because you've got, typically, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Juventus, uh, Bayern Munich, uh, the biggest clubs in Europe are in that competition from the very beginning. Um, the, the MLS teams are not big by that, by that standard. I mean, bigger for us, perhaps. The Mexican clubs are big. Big for Mexico, big for uh, the, the, the population in this country that watches Mexican soccer, but even they have put that to the back burner when compared to the league games or even to Copa Lib. So I, I don't know. I mean, you just don't have the same kind of draw. And then you get to this point, and we're in the semifinals, and you still have teams that don't rate as, and again, this is, not, this is no offense to the Costa Rican teams, but you have teams that don't rate as big in this part of the world the way that Real Madrid certainly does. So that that's to be to considered as well. Thanks for the call, Mike. Appreciate it. Vincent Toronto, you're on the air. What's up? Hey, Jason. How's it going? That's good, man. How are you? I'm good. Um, you know, this whole CONCACAF thing, uh, you know, it's got me thinking about, you know, the region as a whole. And, you know, CONCACAF is a very strange region. It's probably the most unique one in the, of all the confederations because of, uh, I guess, the way everything works here, right? We got you know, three big countries in the north, and then we got, you know, our Central American countries, and then all these different Caribbean islands. Yeah. Um, and so that changes things, you know. And, and I, I, I have my issues with things like the Gold Cup and the fact that the U.S. is the only country uh, that hosts it every year, which, you know, does that affect the, the competitive integrity of the tournament? Maybe. But um, oh, especially when it comes to CONCACAF Champions League, Jason, because – it's not how it is with every other uh, with every other uh, regional competition for clubs. It's not every team, every country gets a team. It gets four, three, four teams or whatever, right? There's only a certain amount of Caribbean clubs, and that's understandable because many of them are amateur uh, are amateur clubs. So you only get maybe a couple teams from Jamaica or Trinidad, um, and then you get a certain. Uh, I, I believe every Central American country gets uh, you know gets their representatives in or whatever. But it's it's, it's different because of the economics and how everything works here. And, you know, and, and just frankly, Jason, in MLS, many of the best coaches in the league simply don't care about the Champions oh, League. Bruce Arena has no incentive to perform uh, in the CCL. Uh, he'd rather, you know, do well in the league than, than win CCL, win perhaps in Europe or in other places. Winning that regional championship is more important than actually winning the league. No, I, 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 yeah, there's certainly that to consider. And until guys, until that mentality changes, you're going to have a, a number of MLS teams who are just aren't going to try to compete on, on the, the best that they can in this competition. It, more often than not, for a guy like Bruce Arena, this is a distraction. It's a, it's a, it's an annoyance. It, it breaks up his regular rhythm. Instead of training midweek, he's got to go down to, to Costa Rica or to, to Honduras or wherever. And he doesn't like it. And again, the, it, it's sort of chicken and egg. Uh, Vince, because for a guy like Bruce Arena, the Champions League won't matter until the Champions League matters. You know what I mean? So until the Champions League is the kind of thing that drives interest in L.A., in the Galaxy, and puts butts in the seats and sells season tickets and gets players to want to come play for him, it, why, would, why would he care? As a head coach, why would he care? No, absolutely. I mean, if he was, let's say, manager of Chelsea and he said straight up, oh, I don't care about the Champions League, I just, I'm just going to focus on the league, he'd get sacked, you know, 
the, the day after he said that, right? But here in this part of the world, the CONCACAF Champions League simply doesn't matter that much. And perhaps it is, you know, the the the, um, the failure of, you know, MLS clubs uh, to, to progress against it's Mexican a, clubs, right? It's a big uh, circle. Our direct rivals who it, constantly uh, do better than us. And, you know, it's demoralizing, right? Last year, seeing Sporting Kansas City get their ass handed to them by, I think it was Cruz Azul, um, quite, you know, uh, quite dominantly, uh, especially, plus the timing and everything, right, about how the semifinals and everything takes place during the early part of the MLS season. I mean, Jason, I, and I've already, this is a broken record from you. I've already told you, I don't see MLS caring about the CONCACAF Champions League ever. And the only way to get, you know, these managers and everybody to actually care about some sort of regional competition is if MLS clubs played in the Copa Libertadores. Okay. But that's, look, you know, that's a logistical nightmare, obviously. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, that's what it is. Thanks for the call, Vince. Washington's asking the same question. Would MLS be better off playing in the Libertadores? They are much better known clubs than the non-MLS, non-Mexico clubs. Some of them are, yeah. Clearly, you've got the, the, the giants of, of, of Argentina and the giants of Brazil and, and some of the other clubs scattered throughout uh, South America, but for the most part, those are still off the radar of the very Anglo-European-centric soccer fan here. And as Vince said, it's a logistical nightmare. If an MLS team, let's imagine Montreal wins the Canadian Cup and is representing the uh, representing their country in the Copa Libertadores, and they've got to fly down to Buenos Aires to play a game. Are you kidding me? How long is that trip? And then they got to fly back. This is all midweek, by the way. Then they got to fly back. And then they've got to play in a league match on the weekend. That's a disaster. And I don't think MLS is ready for Copa Lib anyway. Eddie in Brooklyn, what's up? Last call. Last call. I um, Do you know who's the re- well, who's responsible for MLS not caring about CCL? Uh, MLS? Yeah, MLS. <laughs> because the league doesn't even care about its own regular season. You know what I'm saying? How, how many times do people want to support a show? Man? But it's like, who cares? It's all about MLS Cup. All this sure, emphasis on sure. MLS Cup for okay. no reason. What do you mean for no reason? Shoot. What do you mean for no? For, it's not a crapshoot. You, you're going to say it's that a crap you're shoot. going to say Come that on, the, the Houston Dynamo make the final twice. Okay, but the LA Galaxy win the cup. Do you think that's a crapshoot? They don't think no, they win. I'm the, not saying that, but I'm saying the whole tournament. It's like it's basically the FA Cup. It's just an extension of the I, FA okay, Cup. Okay, but but you okay? You're you're going to put uh, look. I I understand that playoffs aren't everybody's cup of tea, but I don't think it's a crapshoot by any stretch of the imagination. I think there is a certain ability and a certain mentality that be- that benefits teams going into that. And I give Dom Kinnear, rather than saying the Houston Dynamo making the final make, it indicates it's a crapshoot, I give credit to to Dom Kinnear for knowing how to navigate that tournament. Would it be better if the Dynamo finished in first or second in the East instead of fifth or sixth when or fifth when they make that tournament or when they make that final? Yeah, of course it would. Eddie, but I don't. I don't think that necessarily takes away from the tournament itself. So explain to me how the Rebels can outplay the Dynamo two games towards the end of the season. Dynamo don't even belong in the same pitch as the Rebels, and the Rebels get kicked out an extra time. That's not a crapshoot. I, I mean, there's a again, there's a different sort of mentality, a different way of playing, perhaps, and maybe that doesn't always make for the best soccer. I will agree with that. But but I mean, I don't know. I I just think that these. These evalu- these quality, uh, qualitative evaluations of the different areas of competition in MLS kind of miss the point that everything can be, can have its own value. Now, you said that the supporter shield doesn't matter. Well, it mattered to the Seattle Sounders when they won it last year. It mattered to, yeah, and- it mattered to the New York Red Bulls when they won it the year before that. And, and those, eventually it will matter more and more and more, no matter what Alexi Lala says. 
No, I agree wholeheartedly, but then you have a thing where they add more playoff teams, and then what does that do for the I realize season? that. No, I realize that, and I'm against watering so just, down the playoffs. I, I'm against watering yeah, down the so playoffs. It just, it just diminishes the support issue. If you're going so the, to, the problem is that other tournaments, other other competitions get diminished by the value of winning an MLS Cup, I, and, I, and that's all everybody thinks I, about. I realize that. Everybody thinks that winning MLS Cup, that's the mecca. That's okay. So everybody well, says, oh, the Rebels never won MLS Cup. Who cares? We have a support issue. I, I put more value in that. Okay, you do. Personally, that's fine. But I, and I, I, would, but I would reject the notion that, that MLS Cup should matter less because that's not how other... I'm not saying you're making this argument, Eddie, but I would say that uh, any, any idea that the MLS, that MLS Cup matters less because that's not how everybody else does it is ridiculous. I mean, we no, don't, but I think it's ridiculous that people think that MLS Cup should matter more. That's why Bruce Arena doesn't go to USO. Okay, Cup games. but but that's but, why Bruce Arena doesn't but, take TCL seriously we because it's MLS. When Cup. we talk about Mexico, we don't talk about the team that finished first in the Clasura or the first in the Apertura. We talk about the team that won the title, that won it on the field in the playoffs. Eight teams make the playoffs in Mexico. Now, obviously, that's a better in terms of percentage, a better percentage than what MLS is doing right now. But you're going to tell me that. Okay, Club America winning a title doesn't matter as much because they didn't finish in first place. If they didn't, I don't. I think they probably did, but still, they did. Okay, they did. Okay, but that's a. Du- I mean, that's great for them. But it has happened that teams who did not finish first in the standings went on and won a title. And Mexico even makes it. I'm gonna call, say the word worse. I don't really mean it this way, but they make it worse by doubling up on their champions every season. No, but Mexico always has also has the added advantage, and in the playoffs, if it's a tiebreaker, the higher seed will go through. Okay, so it okay. still puts that on a regular season. That's a different argument, and I would agree with you. I, not only am I against watering down the playoffs, I will say if you are going to water down the playoffs, or you're going to have 10 or 12 teams in the playoffs, you better make it more important to finish higher in the standings. Eddie, appreciate the call. i got to run. There goes Eddie in Brooklyn. All right, we, we've gone overtime today. Didn't realize we were going to do that, but there you go. It's good stuff. Thank you very much to our guests, Leander Sherlackins and David Cartledge. Go to 3nilfc.com and buy a t-shirt. Go to backhill.com slash store to buy a mug. Follow us on Twitter at Soccer Morning. Follow me on Twitter at JSN. And uh, we'll see you on Friday. Later.